Welcome to Modifaya, the show that dives into the climate crisis in Belize. I'm Andre. And I'm Digna. For today's episode, we will be talking about forest fires in Belize with Mr. Gustavo Requenia and Eugenio A. from Yashe Conservation Trust and Mr. Mario Muschamp from Toledo Institute for Development and Environment, also known as TIDE. And now it's time for our segment, Moment of Gratitude, One Minute of Rage. Each week, Andrea and I will swap a moment of gratitude for a minute of rage on any topic that's been on our mind in the past week. Last week, I was away, so I will start us off with a moment of gratitude. For those that listened to last week's episode, you might know that I was back a bush. I volunteered with Friends for Conservation and Development. And the reason for this is, for those who might not know, is that the scarlet macaw is an endangered species due to poaching. They fly into Chikibul during this time of year to breed, and it's when poaching is at its highest. Guatemalans hike into the Chikibul to catch the macaws for the illegal pet trade. Thus, Friends for Conservation and Development, known as FCD, through its research team, is spearheading the biomonitoring of the scarlet macaws in an attempt to restore its healthy population. Through Facebook this year, I found out that FCD has an annual Scarlet Macaw Protection Citizen Science Program. It requires volunteers to camp out in the jungle with the team for a period of seven days. I have never been camping like that before, so I was nervous about it. But I don't like staying in my comfort zone, so I decided to give it a try. So it was honestly an amazing experience. Like I mentioned, I was mostly nervous about the camping part. I didn't know what to expect of what the biomonitoring part consisted of. But being there, the team made it so easy for me. And I actually got to learn a lot. Like I knew scarlet macaws were endangered, but I didn't know uh, the extent of it, um, that the Chikibul was the only known area of where they like to go breed. And during my time there and my um, conversations with the team, I found out that these macaws can go into the market for... 20,000 to 40,000 quetzal and that is why the Guatemalans come over to take these macaws and cross it over and it's because of their beautiful colors if you guys have seen macaws it's bright red blue yellow colors they are such a beauty and what my part consisted of was mostly helping the team with filling out forms, making observations. Um, There were a lot of nests this year and they basically just um, went to the nest, see if they had any eggs, if the chicks had hatched, if they seemed healthy, if the nests, if there was any sign of illegal activity near the nests. And I had to help them with this. (laughs) And it was honestly, like I said, I don't know what I was expecting about this, but um, they the team had to actually climb the tree to reach those nests and see them. And they even um, taught us how to climb, how to climb the trees and the method that they use. I, <laughs> I am very small and I'm not heavy, but it's honestly not an easy job. Like, these guys are really investing their time. Imagine being back back a bush for seven days, 14 days. That's their normal shift. And they have to do this every time, every year. And these guys have a genuine love for these parrots. And the activities consisted mostly of like um, paddling, especially because during this time, the dry period, the river is really low. So we... We had to paddle here. Me, we. I was actually the only girl, so I really didn't have to do most of the work. The other guys were the ones who did the most paddling, so I was just enjoying the views. But I was not prepared. I did not take my cap and my sunblock. So there were two days where it was like three to four hours paddling. So you guys can't see, but like literally just my face is sunburnt. Like everything was fully covered, long sleeves, everything, but my face is sunburnt. Um, apart from that, honestly, it was just a great experience. The jungle camping wasn't that hard. Um, 
wearing the long sleeves, long pants, everything helped with with the mosquitoes, repellents, everything. The hiking, I'm not an athletic person. And I thought at some point that I might just pass out. It was not long hikes, but I'm just not used to it. But I managed. And overall, like, I was very, very grateful to experience this. And I might even return next year if I have the chance to to help with this because the macaws, it was the first time seeing them out in the wild. Like being in the zoo is one thing and seeing the animals there, but just going into the wild and seeing them in the habit in their habitat being free and not knowing at what time you're gonna see one. I that was just a very different experience and I, and I was truly in awe seeing all of this and it opened my mind to a lot of things and for that I am grateful for FCD for giving me the opportunity to be a part of this great experience. That sounds so cool and I'm very envious. I was hoping to join you on that same citizen program but I wasn't able to because I have to teach twice a week for the summer and be by my computer as a result of that and computer internet doesn't work back a bush. I'm excited to talk to FCD because they will be on a future episode to talk about forest management, particularly in reference to the Chickable um, Reservation, because uh, that is the site of the one of the major fires from 2020 that actually alerted me to the subject of today's episode, uh, which is forest fire management. So I'm, I'm excited to talk to them and get their insights on that episode then. And thanks for sharing everything that you, you did. And uh, please put something on your skin so you can heal because you do uh, for nobody can see Digna because we don't video on this podcast so that we can both look like a mess whenever we want to record Um, but Digna she looks like she took the skin of the cast of the Jersey Shore and peeled it off and put it on her face Magyal is orange all right she's a burnt orange I swear (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god i swear yeah please go see a dermatologist and make sure you don't have cancer I, I, i'm applying aloe vera in my face hopefully that works i don't want to be out in public like this honestly like i'm like i'm not going to the shop i'm not going to do anything don't ask me to do anything like i'm going to stay here um okay well so now we're going to jump into my moment of rage a minute of rage in three two one my minute of rage this week is dedicated to all those who are who get very upset uh, very easily over the ways in which uh, direct action by the unions is disrupting or inconveniencing their lives. I really feel that a lot of folks have been unable to recognize that this fight that the unions are doing is unprecedented. One, it is the longest strike of employees in Belize's recorded history. That's huge to begin with. Second, every day, there are different actions from the unions. They range from the road blockades, which receive the most criticism from people for the inconvenience it causes, to the funeral procession that happened on Tuesday of this week, um, that was like the cor- death to corruption. And I just really feel that those of us who are not a member of a union uh, need to come to recognize the extent of labor and energy and knowledge that's being applied here at this moment to potentially change the tide of who gets to, gets to say in whom runs Belize. And what the unions are reminding us is that we run Belize if we want to. We can take all the power and truly bring forth a version of this country that works towards the benefit of all. All right, that's my minute of rage. I went over a minute, but I needed to say all that. No, honestly, even I dislike that. Like going into Facebook every day, it's probably my news feed is probably half people who are supporting the unions and the other half are complaining like oh well at least they didn't lose their whole salary like we have been surviving without a salary for a year blah 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 but they don't they fail to realize that this 
is for the betterment of all Belizeans. It's not just them. It's not just about getting their pay cut. And we have to realize that the more divided we are, the more advantage will be taken of us. And it's time that we actually come together, unite, and for once and for all, get over with this corruption and let the government know that no like we are in charge we put you there you're representing us there's no way that you have more power than us but well um i hope the unions don't give up i i haven't had the chance to be part of one of the strikes but um i i hope i can get the time and you know go out there and support them yeah yeah i you would be good on the streets i can tell you you have uh you have a lot of energy and you know i don't know if you remember when elena smith and some of the other union members were dancing but uh i think i think you would be useful in that aspect of the resistance as well no you could punch out you could punch our, us to freedom all right don't know <laughs> so on today's episode we were talking forest fires and we just wanted to take a moment just to share our understanding of forest fires so for myself this became a subject i wanted to talk about Ever since uh, there was the devastating Chickabull fire last year that occurred in May of last year. So we're actually just a little over, we're just about a year up from when that fire happened. And that fire had an impact on 8,216.46 acres of the Chickabull forest which represents 3,284.42 acres in the Caracol Archaeological Reserve and another 4,932 in the Chickabool National Park. So this was, this, this was monumentous in terms of the impact it had on the country. And it was a story that I felt was discussed on the media for the week in which it happened and then it quickly dropped out you know as things do um, as a lot of environmental issues do in the country and I really wanted to get a sense of how people were preparing um, for this year's dry season and what type of initiatives they were to develop more resilient forest fire strategies that were supported both by national systems, but also community efforts. And that's why I'm really glad that we were able to talk to the people from Yeshe and from Tide, because those are two organizations that I have long been following in terms of the work they do on forest fire management. Besides that, I honestly... Forest fires, I think of usually as something that happens in other places, right? Things, something that happened in Australia last year, early last year. Their devastating forest fire that Kayla Gentle in our last episode, she wrote about that in a poem that she shared. And uh, it was featured heavily in a comic book I really liked last year as well. Um, that was all about the intensification of the climate crisis. Well, my familiarity is basically more like how it's more prone here in the west i would always hear about um the fires from agricultural getting out of hand you know and it kind of resonates to the north like uh, we have the sugar industry there so we have a lot of cane farmers cane fields and while nothing has actually gotten out of hand severely um my grandparents they are cane farmers so they have cane fields and sometimes late at night I, I would see them rushing out and they're like, um, we have to go out the fire. Like someone started fire on the cane field nearby and then it got out of hand and now it's not in our field and we have to hurry and go out it. So that's more of like what I understand of forest fires. And like you said, with our interviews, we learned a lot. And then um, the ground fires, I didn't even know that was a thing or if it was possible. Um, Mr. Moschamp will be talking more about it later on in our interview segment. And it, it, it it's scary to think about, you know, that these things are possible and not just because of what it can do to the environment, but what it can do to our health. So like the smoke, sometimes it becomes unbearable. And if people who have breathing problems, they might just get worse, you know. And so I think that we really have to 
take all these things into consideration and find a way to for these fires to not get out of hand probably enforce policies that we have if we have any and i don't know uh, communicate with farmers since most of the fires seem to be intended and they don't well not intended but it just gets out of hand when they try to do the the practice of slash and burn we really hope that you know you all get some insight from these two interviews with the people from Yashe and from Tide. Hi, today on the show, I'm here speaking with two members from Yashe Conservation Trust based in Punta Gorda, Belize. How are you all doing today? I'm doing fine. I'm very, very good. Uh, today is a fine day. It's a sunny outside here. Yeah. So can you introduce yourselves to the audience? My name is uh, Eugenio Up. I am from... San Antonio village, Toledo. I have been with Yashche for the past five years now. And to add to the other years, I have spent over 25 years in the conservation uh, field. No? And right now, I am my, my responsibility with uh, Yashche Conservation Trust is that I am uh, the lead extension officer for agroforestry, also a lead trainer, you know, for ag- agroecology and also fire. You know, and also in addition to that, I I have a farm that I have been developing for the past 18 years, which is you know using the approach of agriculture ecology. Uh, my name is Gustavo Requina. I am uh, from San Pedro, Colombia. I am a farmer. Uh, I cultivate uh, root crops, grains, fruit trees, and timber trees. I am also the Community Outreach and Livelihoods Director at Yashe Conservation Trust. So what made Yashe Conservation Trust start to invest more into forest fire management and education? We recognize that any efforts at improving livelihoods in our communities, whether that be through the promotion of climate smart agricultural practices um, or uh, protected areas management, really is threatened by fire. And therefore, um, as an organization, we developed a comprehensive uh, fire response that the organization is going to use to guide uh, the whole education aspect of the work that we do in our communities because we really want to have the impact uh, of improving livelihoods, but we want to do that by bringing about the necessary behavioral changes within uh, the Maya Golden landscape where we work. Yes, and we also see that, you know, livelihoods, which is uh, using the landscape around the protected areas, is uh, being, you know, it's, it's, it's been increased in use, especially when it comes to the kind of uh, tools we use, like slash and burn, right? So actually fire then really is it's a tool being used, you know, to prepare land for uh, agricultural crops. But the bigger picture is that all of these uh, communities are farming along the protected area so like in all the the theory or the principles of looking at protected area we should not have uh, protected areas remaining like islands which have connectivity um, another very important consideration was the fact that uh, we work in mayan communities and slash and burn is a part of the culture it's a part of the tradition so uh, we have to also uh, be able to embrace the traditions and culture of the people that we work with um, but more importantly, we also want to offer alternatives to sustainable uh, land use management. So what, where, what type of ecosystems does the land that you all protect in terms of forest, management, forest fire management look like? The Maya Golden landscape is uh, a mosaic of communities, protected areas and farmscapes that is predominantly broadly broad forest. As such, it means that this ecosystem is very sensitive to fire. And, and as, um, therefore, it is important that we use our resources uh, within this ecosystem in a manner where our communities can uh, provide uh, for their livelihoods, but equally important that the uh, ecosystem services are not disrupted because of uh, fire. That really increases fuel load. I think you know, the frontiers of fire are moving every year you know, to a larger, larger spot. Yeah. So, so, so really the succession, uh, PM, the whole process of succession 
happens after a disturbance. That could be a, a natural uh, event like a hurricane or something like fire. And so really what you want to do is that you want that process to, to um, move on as naturally as possible without disruption. Uh, what happens when you uh, shorten the follow um, period is that that process is disrupted and so you do not have the ability to get those uh, pioneer species establishing and then you have the colonization of new species that are actually going to bring back to its natural state um, to before the disturbance. If you look at the natural processes that are occurring um, within a forest system, you have all your, your, your above ground layer, which is your vegetation. It's going through its natural process of growth, uh, materials falling on the ground. All of these materials are being decomposed by our uh, very extensive population of uh, soil uh, macro and microorganisms. Um, so you have all of the fungi, the bacteria, all of these organisms doing their magic to be able to cycle the nutrients in that soil. Where we have an issue is when we disrupt that natural cycle of the cycling of nutrients into the soil, um, which causes us to lose that whole amount of soil fertility because those natural processes are being disrupted. Uh, that is... Uh, exacerbated um, whenever we use fire because fire is destroying all of those natural occurring organisms that are uh, cycling the nutrients back into the soil. Uh, now let's let's apply fire to it like what we did uh, just yesterday right uh, it's a it's a very good example of what you call a charred burn so in most cases uh, if you burn right to the ground like what you call hot burn right to the ground and what really you burn everything you know all the biomass so in this case if if, um, if a, a child burn happens that means to say you still have a uh, soil moisture below and really if the, the fire don't really reaches to the ground surface or up to the direct to the soil no? so you still have layers of uh, moist biomass where at the top you know you have charred you know so your fire is not really that hot so that is the firing technique that, you know, we try to, to address. One thing I'm curious about is what are the various sources of fires at this point in time in the era that you all are helping to manage? One of the main source of fire is actually uh, farmers clearing uh, land for the cultivation of their crops. That in itself is a concern because there are alternatives. I mean, you can change from a slash and burn to a slash and mulch system. However, whenever the, 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 the right uh, techniques are followed to uh, have a controlled burn, then we can have only the area that the farmer is cultivating being burnt. And that is uh, something that makes uh, the whole fire usage in a way better than what is currently being practiced where you have a lot of escape fires. A farmer burning one or two acres of land, the fire escapes and burns hundreds if not thousands of acres. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Milpa slash and burn system. Specifically, I'm curious as to know what has changed about the practice, given that it's a very, very ancient traditional technique um, that the Maya of this region have to some degree mastered at some point in time. What has changed about it that no, it seems like there is difficulty in managing the fires in a way that is not damaging to nearby forests. Um, I think one of the big changes that has happened is a shorter fallow period. You have a lot more pressure on the land because of higher populations. And therefore, you have the period of fallow being shorter because people have to go back and cultivate that area. That, I think, is an, uh, one of the big changes that has occurred. Additionally, I think that um, we are seeing where uh, we are having a lot of escape fires. These escape fires can be attributed to uh, many reasons, but um, I would think that one of the contributing factors to an increased uh, number of escape fires is actually our higher temperatures that we are experiencing now, because 
the increased temperature and uh, the lower relative humidity means that you'll have the chances of a skip fire being higher. How far along do you feel along the process of having people within the various communities able to be deployed if a fire should occur? I think it is very low. Honestly speaking, I would like to see um, uh, more communities take ownership for their fires. Um, I would like to see more uh, a, a individuals recognizing that, you know what, fire is a threat to a, not just property, but to resources that we so much depend on, whether it be our uh, resources uh, for building our homes, our food resources, because, um, whether it be anim and game animals, but most importantly, our water resources, like Wahenyo highlighted earlier. I think one of those critical issues that we must bear in mind is that whenever we have fire, we're actually negatively impacting the whole water cycling process that occurs. But there are many, many reasons why it is that we still have a very low um, ownership of fire in the communities. One, I think it is that we need to have more awareness of the risks and dangers of fire. Two, I think that we also have to recognize that whenever we have individuals responding to fire, it's actually time, effort, resources, and a risk that is involved. And so the recommendation that I would make would be that a system be put in place where these communities actually have some way of compensating our volunteers who respond to fires in the community. I also think that there would be the need to actually put in place some kind of or mechanisms that will recognize that the fire that are, are being used in these communities are actually, um, they, they need to be regulated. For example, right now, if you're gonna burn a milpa, you are, you are required to get a permit from the Ministry of Agriculture. They go and inspect the field, that is on paper. That does not happen. And so those are the systems that must be in place for us to be able to deal with the fire issue. If I go back to, the, to last year during the pandemic, an SI was signed for the whole uh, making it illegal for individuals to burn. And I think that that was a step in the right direction. I think something like that can be uh, looked at closer, look at how it is that um, we can, one, still respect the need to um, use fire in the Mayan communities because it's a part of the way, uh, it's, it's a way of life, but how is it that we do it more responsibly so that we minimize escape fires in uh, Belize? Yes, um, on the ground, like what we're seeing uh, since I came aboard in charge of the fire program, um, what I've seen, the, the, the practice, and I think this is because of the lack of knowledge and capacity. Um, I have seen in many communities, you know, not only here in Toledo District, but all over Belize, when it comes to garbage, you know, is disposed by fire. Right, and again, just connecting it briefly to the smart agriculture practice what we do, is that, uh, you know, these grasses, these, whatever, it comes from a village or it comes from a, 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 a town, where these, uh, you know, um, green grass or wood debris could be, you know, turned into, into mulch, right? So again, this is maybe one way of uh, owning, owning your fire, right? And like, we rightly said is that we need to do more. And um, for the past years, you have seen where the awareness really is picking up. But at the end of the day, I think there are certain um, factors that was not really working within the, within the program to support us to continue. We have seen that level of awareness, uh, you know, kind of, you know, trickling down again to where it was. So really, our role here, like what we said about providing capacity building and also fire resources, you know, it's just a start. And again, um, on the ground talking to people, you know, there are one or two communities taking that responsibility, 
for example, uh, I can name a community here in Toledo, you know, where we were approached by the village council chairman of uh, San Pedro Colombia in the Toledo district. So that is one indication, a drop in the bucket, so to speak, where, you know, there is a community becoming of, uh, aware of the fire because they experience a large extent of their community lands, you know, burnt, right? So, and we are seeing another one, and I, I may need to mention here another community in Medina um, Bank, you know, where, you know, they're saying, hey, you know, we need to work together, we need to network. So in this case, then they were pointing out that, you know, we need resources at the community level, you know, we need to look at that. And, and again, we, we are short of that kind of uh, resource when it comes to, to, to equipment. We have the technical uh, capability here at the organization, but um, if we train people, you know, how will they uh, use their training for if we don't have the resources? What does the fire management training involve in terms of what it teaches people? So there are some key elements that must be covered in any fire training. We have a theoretical part and a practical part. Basically, the theoretical part would be uh, the basics on fire behavior, how it is that fire impacts ecosystems, how it is that fire creates its own fire weather. Uh, these elements are what are covered in, in, in our theory. In addition to the um, equipment, their proper use, how it is that you uh, respond to fire uh, in a safe manner, those would be some of the elements that are covered. The practical part is how it is that you apply those elements in the actual execution of a safe burn. Yes, just to emphasize one key element is that the vertical fire weather, you know, how, how wind, how um, relative humidity, how temperature, you know, really impacts, you know, the fire behavior. So all of these things that, you know, that the, that the, that the participants for the fire uh, capacity building, you know, needs to know, you know, and also the, when we do control burn, what is it that the standard guideline needs to be in place? And if, for example, your, your uh, six, six feet wide uh, fire break, you know, all uh, snags and, and fuel that are considered fire hazards needs to be falling into the, into the burnt area. And also, you know, heating support from from other fellow farmers, you know, because then you know they might have you know a cacao agroforestry or or milpa around, you know, and at the same time trying to trying to involve the community leaders, you know, like the alcohol and the chairman, they should be the ones, you know, looking at the, the fire program at the at the community. So you know, so it's 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 that type of training that we're trying to promote. I know that the Shea fundraises in order to fund its fire management program. Can you tell our listeners what that money goes towards in case they're interested in supporting it? Our fundraising efforts um, are, are are geared towards how is it that we one build capacity, two raise awareness on the issues uh, of fire usage. Thirdly, uh, the whole idea of accessing equipment to be able to respond to fire. That is where the uh, bulk of our efforts go into. But most importantly, I think, is the whole idea of how it is that we provide alternatives. Because we want to provide alternatives to slash and burn. So we have a very robust climate smart agricultural practice practices that we promote in our community. So we have the cacao agroforestry, ingali cropping, the use of cover crops, apiculture. All of these are efforts that we put in place and that we are actually practicing, that we have farmers adopting that would be alternatives to slash and burn. Why? Because if a farmer adopts any of those practices that I just mentioned, then he has no need for slash and burn. Do you have any final words? Well, I would just like to uh, remind the communities of the destructive nature of fire, how it is that actually fire that is left unattended, whether it be a small fire where people are disposing of uh, gar disposing garbage using fire, or it be a milpa, that really whenever that fire escapes, you are not just destroying the forest, but you're actually destroying all the biodiversity that is 
a part of that forest which is going to impact our uh, water resources, but most importantly, that threatens our livelihoods. And so I would appeal to our Belizean audience to kindly be more responsible uh, with the use of fire. Um, let us collectively work together to uh, reduce the negative impacts of fire on our communities and our livelihoods. Usually, uh, what I encourage people to do, especially it starts, it starts within, you know, each individual looking at owning their fire, right? So that again will transcend, you know, to other members of the community, the whole community, and of course, you know, looking at the national scale, that is where we need to look at um, fire. We need to own our fire, meaning you are very responsible. You don't um, do any action that will enable the, the spread of wildfires, right? And rightly said, we are facing a lot of challenges right now when it comes to climate change. So definitely the use of fire smartly, I would say, is to think before you act. And um, because of climate change, you know, we can be part of the problem too, rather than the, the solution. So I would want to ask, you know, let us think for a moment and create that self-awareness. And by adding, we are very close to nature, you know, nature is part of us, right? So we are, we are nature. So that is what I want to, to share with Belize. This is a message from the Yashe Conservation Trust. Fire, fire! Somebody run, tell me neighbor, he found me get burned. Boy, my whole farm last night, man. What? Sorry for hearing that, buddy. How it happened? That my neighbor, boy. He made the bunny plot and the fire get away. That's the bad news, man. He no make the six feet fire pass round his plot or tell any neighbor for get help to burn safely? No, nothing like that, man. I hear that just him and the son start the fire and then left it alone before he even burn out. That's not right, man. They need at least six people for help burn. And you should have never left it until you show the fire no get away. And he picked one of the worst days for start a fire too. Yesterday, me only had an lot of wind. I tell you, boy. If he may tell you he a burn, we could have gonna help him and make sure the fire no get away and damage people's farm, crops, and property. You don't say it, brother. Allah, we have responsibility for controlling fire. Fire, fire is dangerous. If you can't control it, no start it. So Digna and I are here today with Mr. Marimus Trump from the Toledo Institute for Development and the Environment, also known as TIDE. Uh, good morning, Mr. Mustrump. How are you doing today? Yeah, good morning, Andre and Digna. Um, doing fine. Um, was up early this morning to travel from Payne Street National Park here to the main office in Nagoda to be a part of this uh, discussion. Uh, for me, very important, very important discussion as it relates to wildland fire management. Um, and again, at the national level, because that's where it needs to be addressed. How are things at the park today? Pretty hot. Uh, we are seeing some really hot temperatures for the past few days. Um, I like the projection in terms of the weather. It looks like we'll be getting a little bit of rains, which is what, actually something that we really need, especially as it relates to this time of year when we, we do see a lot of fires. So a little precipitation will, will, will reduce that, that, that fire risk. How, how does this year compare to last in terms of heat? Uh, do you feel like it's similar, worse, better? I think that um, this year is a little bit wetter than last year um, because this time of the year, last year, the entire place was pretty dry. Um, like a week and a half ago, we got quite a bit of rain. So it's, it's much better um, that way than it was um, last year. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how you started your work in forest fire management in Toledo? Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, I started working here at Tide in 1999. And during the revision and the development of our parks management plan, fires uh, or unwanted fires in this case uh, was identified as one of the major causes to the integrity of the protected area. And so it's something that we had to address um, these fires were impacting pine regeneration and also um, impacting our yellow-headed parrot, one of the endangered species um, population um, in the park and adjacent areas. Um, because these fires occurred during the hottest and driest time of the year, 
and usually during the nesting season for this species. And so, um, and the species really loves to nest in, in old dead trees, especially pine trees. So we know that during fire events, uh, dead pine trees fuel. Um, and if it is with nest, then you usually lose that nest, and most of the times with eggs or chicks. So that was really contributing a lot to the decline of the species in our area, and we need to address that. And that's how I got involved with fire management. What training did you receive for forest management? Um, basically, I started my training here in Belize um, in 2000. Um, I started up in the Rio Bravo Conservation and Management area in another part of the country um, through a project with the Nature Conservancy called the Global Fire Initiative. Um, uh, back then, the Nature Conservancy was trying to address wildland fire management at the regional level, so the Americas, so focusing on the Americas and the Caribbean, with Belize involved. So, um, and, and they came here and started doing training. So we got the basic trainings to you know, really understand fire behavior and the factors that influence those things. And then it moved on from there into actually using fire as a management tool. Um, for those trainings, though, I had to go to the U.S. And so I did a lot of trainings. A lot of my trainings were done in the U.S. Um, with the Nature Conservancy, the U.S. Forest Service, and the U.S. Park Service. Were you doing that on your own, or was that a broader initiative of people who were trying to learn more about forest fire management? Well, basically, um, like I mentioned, we had an issue with fires, um, and we needed to address it. Um, so it, uh, I was going as a representative tied to those to those sessions to build our capacity here so we can address um, fires here in, in, in our protected areas. Um, and, and that's how it started. Okay, thank you, um, Mr. Mushamp. And can you tell us about the work of the Southern Belize Fire Working Group and how that came about? From my visits and my trips um, to the U.S. to build my capacity, I found out, um, for example, in Florida, no one group or one organization alone can deal and handle these fires that we, we are seeing. And so how they were able to address it in the U.S. were through the form of um, what they call fire councils. And so I took that idea from there and came back to Belize with it and started discussing with our partners here in the southern part of the country. We were all facing the same problems with these fires. And so it was um, other partners on board. So partners like the Yashtek Conservation Trust, the Forest Department, um, two long-term forest licensees in the area. So would stop um, out of Belmopan and then Thomas Gomez and Sons Lumber Limited here in the south. These two um, companies work in the Deep River Forest Reserve. And so we were seeing really um, bad impacts on fires um, in these areas. And so we decided to join forces um, with each of us bringing our own expertise and our own resources to the table so we can address these fires that we're seeing. And so that was done and started in 2007 and we have been working together ever since. Nice. So Belize is a very hot place, as you know, and it's becoming increasingly hotter every year. How is it combating escape fires, uh, you know, the, the actual experience of it? And what challenges do you face that may be different from or in addition to the challenges that firefighters in cities or other places with cooler climates face? Um, well, we all know that uh, fire behavior is very important if you want to address fires. And so and it the factors that influence fire behavior will be the fuel, um, weather conditions, and the topography of the land. Um, so those are three of the main factors that will influence how that fire behaves. So once you understand those things, then you will know exactly how to address certain fires. Um, one of the first steps you have to do when there's a fire is to go out there and assess it, see exactly what it's doing, what is burning, how fast it's moving, what are the flame lengths and the flame heights? Uh, what is it burning into? And then based on that um, and the experience and your crew and the equipment that you have, you can determine which methods of attack you will use to actually suppress that fire. Um, and there are two methods. There's a direct attack method, um, when you go and, di and fight directly the, the flame in front, or there's the indirect attack. When you can't get to that flame in front, then you'll have to drift back a certain distance from that fire putting in control lines. Mr. Moshamp, I always had this question because like forest fires are um, common here in Belize, especially during these times, like you said. And I've always wanted to know, like, how do you know um, what causes fires? In Belize, we only have what we call anthropogenic fires, which is man-made and can be started by man in different ways. And then we have natural cause fires, which is mainly done by light. 
Um, those are the two main sources of fires that we have in Belize. And they are easy to tell apart um, in terms of which is natural um, fires and which are man-made. And if you really understand what's happening, you can go and to that, that site and you can see exactly where that fire was started based on um, signs that you're seeing on the ground, um, on the different vegetation types, then you can tell whether that fire was naturally started or it was started by humans. And you can get a pretty good idea exactly when it was started. But those things come with experience um, after years of doing it. And from your time working um, in this area, have you noticed that fires are becoming more frequent in Belize? I, from what I'm seeing, uh, I think the fires in Belize have maintained a certain level. Um, there might be increases in some parts of the country, but then you'll get a decrease like in other parts. Um, and so when you look at it on uh, average, I would say we are about the same. Um, annually, we're seeing fires scattered all across this country for various reasons. Some of those fires are for clearing the land for agriculture, but some of these fires are actually people setting fires to, for hunting purposes. Um, so, so a lot of the fires we are seeing, most of the fires we are currently seeing are done by hunters here in the South. And I have a strong feeling it's the same in other parts of the country. A lot of it has been done by hunters. We do have a lot of escape fires from agricultural burns, uh, which is something that, again, needs really needs to be addressed. Um, but that requires proper training to the folks that actually use fire to clear land and ensuring that they have the proper equipment to address these fires. When our With the Vaca Forest fire last year, you were you said on News 5 uh, that it was a ground fire that was happening because the drought had caused the roots and other underground organic material to dry out. Are there ways to mitigate conditions that can cause such fires uh, underground? Because that was a type of fire that I hadn't even thought would be possible in Belize, given how humid it is generally. Yeah, I mean, if you notice last year, we had quite a bit of dry, long dry period. So what happens is those fuels underground can will dry out, especially um, in areas where, you know, the water table will fall a lot lower. Um, and so those, those um, fuel will dry out and can be ignited. Um, and once fire starts in that way, this is one of the worst fires you can get. Um, because it's hard to attack, it's usually underground. When you have fires like that, you have to dig in or you'll have to flood that area out so that the water can soak in and put back moisture into those fuels so that they can go out. How do you do either of those techniques? That sounds really intensive, the flooding or... Yeah, yeah you'll have to have a good water source and proper pumps and all of that stuff so you can flood those areas out. Damn. It's, 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 it's rough when it's like that. Fortunately for Belize, we don't see much of that type of fire. Most of the fires we see are surface fire. And I'm glad that we are not getting crown fires a whole lot too, because that is even worse um, when it comes to addressing those types of The people fires. from Yashay told us that they primarily work in the land they over, they, they protect the My Golden Landscape. And he said that you were more involved in looking over pine forest. Is there any distinction in how you manage fires in both areas? as far as um, both surveillance, but also the actual, the way in which fire interacts with the species that are prominent in one era versus another? Well, certainly, um, I would say that there are different um, ecosystem types in Belize that are actually, what I would call, fire sensitive. So such as our broadleaf forest. Um, the species in that forest are not adapted to fire. So any types of fire can seriously impact that ecosystem and change it completely. Our savannas now are fire dependent, so they actually need fire. Um, but what has been happening in Belize, they have been getting too much fires. The annual fires are not good. So the work that we have been doing here is looking at what intervals should we return those fires to the landscape. And what we are seeing is somewhere between three and five years. So every three to five years, you need to put fire on the landscape, especially in the pine savannas. Um, to one, to, to reduce the fuel load, that will stop those catastrophic wildfires. And it can also be used to, you know, promote pine regeneration and protection of keystone species within this. Are there other attempts to in the broadleaf forest to do type of fire breakage as well there? In savannas, again, because our savannas are pretty large, um, especially here in the southern coastal plain. So it's just one connection. So what 
for us to be able to address fires in these areas, we have to put in fire breaks. So what we do as part of our fire management is these areas are breaking up into smaller units with fire breaks. And then, um, and then from there is where we, we, we develop what we call a fire management plan for the area. So how are we gonna use fire in this area as a tool? And then that is breaking along even into further. So each parcel that you have selected, you will go ahead and develop what is called a prescribed burn plan for that site. So you will develop a plan for that site. That plan has to be submitted to forest department for approval because you shouldn't be using fire without prior approval um, from the forest department for the fires that we do here. So, um, and if you're going to be doing agricultural fires, you need to apply for a permit from the agriculture department before you can put fire on the ground. And so we have to develop all of those burn plans, submit them to the forest department, get those approved, then we can go ahead. And Are the people who ignite these fires often held accountable um, in some legal manner for what they've done? That's the biggest problem in this country. Uh, enforcement of existing rules and regulations has been a, a big, big, big issue. Um, we believe that time is now for some of these people who are putting these fires out there mindlessly to be charged because that's arson, um, because they are doing it, one, without prior commit, um, approval, and, uh, and two, the time of the year and the time of day that they're doing it is the most destructive time, um, and you're getting the most destructive fires um, during this time of the year. But in the case of, let's say, when somebody ignites a fire and they want it extinguished but can't do it themselves, then what incentive exists for them to report the fact that they they ignited a fire if they're going to be punished? First thing, you shouldn't even ignite it without getting fire approval. So they're already, already in the wrong. So you cannot be right. You cannot be right if you're already wrong, right? So, 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 so most of the time when that happens, nobody reports it. And that is why we're seeing all these wildfires burning off thousands and thousands of acres across the state. So there's not a hotline that people can contact and anonymously give a tip that there's been a fire? For that question, you'd have to go to the forest department because they are the ones that are the overall responsibility when it comes to forest fires in Belize. And they are the ones who should be setting up that hotline and all of that stuff. Mr. Mushroom, you are among those that fought a fire last year in Bleeding Natural Reserve. Can you tell us about your experience? Well, I've been fighting fires every year, fires that we don't want. But I have also been doing a lot of prescribed burns as well. So the experience that we have had with fire is, is a lot. We need to, first of all, like I mentioned, when you go to a fire, the first thing you need to do is what we call a size up. So assess that fire and see exactly what it's doing, how fast it's moving, what it's burning into, and all of that kind of stuff before you determine what methods of attack you will use to suppress that. And, and then you go from there. Um, again, uh, I think like two years ago, we, we did a seven to two hour shift uh, fighting fires. It was three days without sleep to really put that fire out, um, a crew of like just nine people. So we were like 72 hours without sleep to put out one of these fires. Um, we tried direct attack. We were able to slow it down and then we had to come back again and then eventually we had to do an indirect attack and burn out a little bigger piece than we'd have liked. But that was the safest way to do it. Um, because first and foremost, the safety of your crew and your personnel is first. We can plant back trees. I mean, our forest will respond after a fire, will come back after a fire. But I can't give back life to one of my colleagues. So their um, safety is first and foremost on any, on, on any fire. When we spoke to Yashay about this subject, and they mentioned that due to the current volunteer nature of firefighters, uh, forest firefighters, that they often see that people will participate to combat one or two fires, but that they aren't coming back after that. And they mentioned that there was a need to create some sort of incentive structure to compensate these firefighters. What are your thoughts on that? And is there any movement on developing something of that kind? I totally agree with that um, because uh, it's an issue. This is a very dangerous work. Um, and, and so if we'll have people who will volunteer for it for one or so, we, we, need, to, we need to be able to find some sort of compensation for those people. Um, for us here at Tide, what we have done um, in, in terms of our projects, we have included stipends for community folks who come and help us with, with, with fires. So if a person come and help us with a fire, that person will pay for his day work. 
um, so they don't do so, so that person can feel a part of the whole thing and, and get a bigger picture and will eventually want to come back once they see once you know they know they will be paid it's building their capacity and so that's the kind of um, concept that we are, we have been using here at tide so every year we include in our budget stipend for community members that will come and help us with fires whether it be a prescribed burn or suppressing a wildfire and um, I wanted to know, how long are those trainings typically? And how can people get involved in receiving that type of training? It, it, it's, it's, um, it varies. Uh, so the, we have what we call a basic training, which is two, three days training. So to learn the basic concepts um, and, and terminologies and all of those things, fire behavior, um, the stuff that influence fire behavior, understanding the fire triangle. So the fire, for you to get combustion to happen, you need to know that you need energy, heat, and fuel. Either of those, one of those three things are not available, then you won't get combustion. And that's an important concept to understand when it comes to suppression, because then you need to address one of these, either the fuel, you know, the ignition source, or the oxygen. Which one is in, you would be able to take out when you go to that fire and you look at it, which one of these, elements of this this triangle will you be able to address to really suppress this fire. So, so usually the basic training is two to three days. Then we have the advanced training that's five to seven days. How regularly are those hosted? Again, it's based on needs. Um, like for us here at the Southern Belize Fire Working Group, we do what we call refresher courses every two years with our staff and our, our members mm -hmm. to keep everybody up to speed. Everybody keeps, you know, and because then there are some changes that happens um, with the different training modules over the years. And so if there's any changes, then we need to incorporate that into the training. And so we try to do it every year. Uh, there's a real need to develop a capacity in terms of equipment for fire management. Is there any way that people can contribute to TIDE in their efforts to build capacity? Certainly. Um, you just have to go on the TIDE website um, and, and contact the, the administrative office and you can contribute in that way or you can contact me um, and we go from there certainly i think um, one of the big stuff in belize is the, the equipment um, not a whole lot of people have the equipment they are not cheap and you can only get them in the us so it, it's it's a challenge um, and it's very costly in terms of getting the tools needed to, to really fight and just fire issues. All right, that's all the questions we had for you, Mr. Mastramp. Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with in terms of what they should know about forest fire management or the ways that they can further assist efforts like the ones that TIDE are doing? A lot of that message is already out there. Um, one I think that I want to close with, though, is, is, is the fact that there's a draft wildland fire management policy and strategy for Belize. Now it's been in the draft stage since 2009. Um, I think the Southern Belize Fire Working Group is the only group or organization in this country that's actually using that draft policy and strategy. Because we feel that if implemented, it will address a lot of issues that we are seeing with fire here in Belize. So my plea here is that we want to, I personally would like to see that policy and strategy be adapted by cabinet and come into law. Uh, if that happens, we will see a huge improvement in terms of wildland fire management process because it speaks to capacity building, it speaks to coordination, it speaks to infrastructure to address, you know, detection of fires early so it gives you a better chance of suppressing them. But most and first and foremost, it gives power to the local communities and local users of fire to really take this thing on and, and, and make it best, better for Belize and for them as, as a people. And I would certainly like to see this um, policy and strategy being implemented um, so we can address fires across this country. Thanks to the folks from Yashay Conservation Trust and Mr. Mustram for their time. If you like the show, please consider writing a five-star review for us over on Apple Podcasts as it helps to increase the show's visibility. If you write a five-star review, we will read it in a future episode. If you have a climate crisis or environmental story impacting Belize you'd like to discuss, you can contact us at MADA 
F-Y-A-H at gmail.com or message us on Facebook and Twitter at Marafaya and be sure to hit that follow button. We encourage you to subscribe to the show so you can hear all of the informative episodes that we have upcoming in the next few weeks. Thanks to Alexander Evans for providing our theme song. You can find him on Instagram at Alexander Evans Music and thanks to Demi Williams for providing our artwork. And thanks to you for listening to Marafaya. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And remember, climate change is real and collective effort is needed to save our home.